five-week series on marriage. And the title of this series of, of talks is To Have and To Hold. I thought about calling it uh, Till Death Do Us Part, but I didn't want to give anybody any ideas. So um, we're going to be looking at five commitments in the next five weeks uh, that will contribute to, if a person is thinking about getting married, a very godly, healthy marriage. And for those of us that already are married, that it will just raise the bar on your relationship. And so I'm thinking as we get started in this series this morning that probably growing up, many of us, if not all of us, had big dreams about marriage growing up. And if you are married today, many of us might say, well, I am, Scott, I'm, I'm privileged to be in a great marriage. And we've worked really hard at this, and, and it's, of course, far from perfect, but in all honesty, it's pretty healthy and it's pretty fulfilling. And then there'd be some of us that would be here this morning that are married or in a relationship prior to marriage um, who say, you know, uh, my dating experiences or my marriage, to be honest with you, Scott, they've been a significant disappointment. They've been scar-filled. They've been rejection-based and they've just been difficult. And some of you might even be here wondering, um, is, a, is a healthy marriage even possible? And I would say to you, and I think many people would say to you that it's absolutely possible. And no matter where you're coming from this morning, um, I think we would all agree that a healthy relationship that then leads to a marriage and a healthy marriage requires a significant, big time investment. Something that saddens me is that in, I think in particular in North America and in the European setting as well, that we've, we've begun to see marriage as a legal agreement. And it just absolutely could be nothing further from the truth. No, marriage and a healthy marriage is about standing before a pastor making a spiritual covenant with holy God. It's not about a legal document. It's about making a spiritual covenant with holy God. About asking God to give us the kind of relationship that leads to a marriage, the kind of marriage that he wants us to have, which could be incidentally quite different than we might have dreamed of and might have imagined. It's about making a covenant with him and before human witnesses, like I did with Debbie more than 32 years ago, I, Scott, take you, Debbie, to have and to hold from this day forward. And there's something rich about that commitment. There's a permanency inherent in the words. There's a closeness. There's, there's hope in those words and in those statements. And we, we make those things and we say we're moving past the past and we're looking together under God to his preferred future for us. And it's a huge commitment that you make. Think of the words, I'm committing to you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. I will forsake all others and I will be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. So help me God. It's a monster commitment. And we're going to talk about commitments that evolve out of that 
And this won't be the exact titles in the next few messages, but one week we're going to talk about how to fight fair. One week we're going to talk about having fun, and just so you know, that's the sex talk. And uh, one week we're going to talk about uh, uh, staying pure, and one week we're going to talk about never giving up. But this morning, uh, we're going to talk about one and then two. One and then two. Might be when I was younger, I can't remember now, but maybe I even said this, but I've heard more than a few people say to me something like this, I am so excited, I think I've found the one. And mixed up in that thinking, as, as cool as that kind of can be, mixed up in that thinking sometimes is this the idea that I can't really be fulfilled until I found the quote-unquote one. And what I would desperately love to hear, I've never heard this in my entire life, but I would desperately love to have someone come up to me and say, I'm so excited, Scott. I've met someone, they're a follower of Jesus just like I am. They're seeking to live a, a holy life in the power of the Spirit. They're awesome, they have fun together. And you know what, Scott? I'm so excited because I think I have found the two. See, the culture would teach us that we need to find the one. And what does God say? If you want to have the kind of marriage that only God can give you, the kind of relationship that only God can give you, that other person can never, ever, ever be the one. Huge mistake to think this way. God has to be the one, and our spouse, if we're married. And that's not the calling God has from everyone. And we talked about that last week, didn't we, when we talked about singleness. But if we are married and God uh, directs us to be married, and this is the sense we have, um, that spouse should always be the two. And we see this clearly illustrated in Scripture. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. And, and we'll just read a few verses there in Matthew chapter 22. And we'll begin reading at uh, verse 34. And just to set the scene, um, when Jesus was doing his work on the earth, uh, there was two groups of uh, religious leaders and they were political leaders as well. Um, it's still like that to this day in Israel. Everything's political and religious. But in that day, the, the most powerful people were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they were competitors. They had different theological underpinnings. And they were competitors with one another. But one thing they both agreed with is they hated Jesus. And they wanted to find a way to trip him up and to get him to say something that was uh, culturally inappropriate so that they could arrest him and... and In, in your singleness and your, your fields relationally and vocationally and spiritually. And, uh, and the scripture talks about this in Matthew chapter 19 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It, it might be as well... Um, and I'm not going through all those five or six things from last week, but it might be as well that you're here this morning and you're single and you're open to marriage. And I'm going to suggest to you, and incidentally, we're going to be talking, uh, Deb and I are going to meet with the young adults today, and we're going to be talking about uh, dating and relationships and marriage. But if you're here this morning, um, I think the most foundational principle of having a relationship that thrives is when God is our one. When God is our one. 
And so if you're here this morning and you're open to marriage, I'm going to call on you to make this commitment based out of that Matthew 22 passage. I will seek the one with all my heart, soul, and mind while preparing for the two. I'll seek the one with everything I've got. Not in a one-dimensional way, but in a, in a holistic way. I'm going to seek him with everything I've got while I'm preparing for the two. And in the power of the Spirit, I will honor God. I'll love him. I'll seek him. I will want to please him. I want to bring glory to him. And, and when we have this kind of heart disposition, I believe he'll help us do that. The challenge is that some people... Not everybody, but some people who call themselves Christians. And I know that there are those here this morning that don't call themselves Christians. Every week we have people that are here on the journey. And they're just, some people are going, I don't even know if there's a God. Some people are going, well, I think there might be a God, but I'm not really sure. I think there's a God, and I'm not really sure if he's the only God. Maybe he's just one of a few gods, I don't know. And I realize that there's people here on the journey. And you're so welcome. We're glad you're here with us. But then there's some of us here that are followers of Jesus and we're seeking him fervently in our relationship, growing with him. And then there are some of us here that are believers that kind of, we have this idea that while I'm seeking that person that I want to spend the rest of my life with, I'm just going to kind of put this relationship with God on pause because I want to go to the clubs, I want to cruise around on Tinder, I want to move from person to person, I want to live an ungodly life, which is incredibly dangerous and sadly all too common. This young woman um, who had been a committed believer grew up in a Bible-believing home with a mom especially deeply committed to Christ, loved her daughter deeply. And when this daughter went away to school, and, and this happens sometimes, doesn't happen all the time, but once in a while it happens. She goes away to school fresh off the boat from home, and uh, when she gets to university away from home for the first time, sees all that's going on with some of the folks there, and begins to get drawn into the culture. And she starts to party, starts to drink, which she'd never done before, starts to drink too much, starts to do drugs, starts to sleep around with different guys. And she gets into this vicious, hurtful cycle of destructive sin. But the whole time she's thinking, I still believe in God. I still want to have a great relationship with him. And one day I want to have a godly marriage. But right now, not so much. Well, one day she meets this guy who was everything she'd hoped for in terms of someone to marry. He was godly. He lived a holy life. Good career, leader. He was discipling other young adult men in the church. And she told her mom about this guy. She said, I met this guy and he's everything I've always wanted, he's godly, uh, he's, he's the kind of man I want to marry, and I'm going to make myself available to him. And her mom, who loved her deeply, gently said to her, sweetheart, you need to know something. A guy like that 
is not looking for a girl like you. Now, does Jesus offer forgiveness for our sin? He absolutely does. If we are, you know, if, we, if we're raw about it and real with him about it, like David was in Psalm 51, if we say, God, would you help me turn from, would you not only forgive me and cleanse me, but help me to turn from that, which is what the word repentance literally means from the Greek, it means to turn, and God helps us to turn and go in the other direction. If this is the sincere desire of our heart, there is forgiveness, there is cleansing, there is healing, there is restoration. One of the things Debbie and I will talk to the young adults about tonight, I'll just give them a little foreshadowing or something like that, is that when you're looking to be married, you know, it's always a great thing to pick the right person, to date the right person or be in a relationship with the right person and then marry the right person. That's important, but more important than that is to become the right person. Don't ever forget that. More important than finding the right person, as important as that is, is becoming the right person. And we do this when we're unmarried by seeking the one with our heart, soul, and mind while preparing for the two. Now, if you're here this morning and you're married already, the commitment I'm going to call you to is this, I will always seek the one with my two. I will always seek the one with my two. Now, why is this so important? Because marriage will never be what God really intends for it to be unless he is the one and our spouse is the two. And biblical marriage as it's described that issues forth from Genesis chapter two is the best environment for this to take place. It's not a perfect environment because none of us are perfect. Only Jesus was without sin. But it's the best environment, the environment that God created where there's a a heterosexual, monogamous, covenant relationship. This is the biblical pattern. And so he is called on to be the one and our spouse is to be the two. And sometimes I come across people who, who are mixed up a little bit about this and they'll say, well, well, Dixon, I really like to have God as number one and I want to make my children number two and my spouse number three. Not biblical. Not God's pattern. Read Ephesians chapter five and Ephesians chapter six. Not his pattern. And I would say to people, that you need to love your, your children deeply in a sacrificial way, but they always need to know they're number three after your spouse, who, humanly speaking, should be the most important person in your life. So sometimes, I think I've said this to you before, but I'll use this illustration. If 10 is perfect love, none of us are going to love 10 because none of us are perfect, but we should love our spouse, say, 9.5, and our kids, 9.3. So there's really no sort of you know, the difference is just minute. But if push ever comes to shove, it is 9.5 and 9.3. And the best way to raise kids is when they look at you and say, Dad, I know you love Mom. Or Mom, I know you love Dad. And this is how God sets it up. 
when our spouse is number one in our life, it's totally unfair to them because they're fallen people just like us. This is why he says in Matthew 22, don't do it that way. When, our, when we try to make spouse number one in our life, it's totally unfair because they're fallen people just like this and they will fail you and let you down sooner rather than later. And I've heard it so many times in my life with people. I'm sure I've done it myself too. We start saying, you know, you're not doing this for me or you're not meeting all my needs, blah, blah, blah. It's because they're not intended to. You know, and I've heard stuff like this, you know, when they first meet. He says, she's so organized and, and driven, and I love how she's passionate about life. And then a little while later into the relationship, they'll say, um, she's such a control freak. She wants everything her way, and she nags and nags and nags me. And then the woman says to me, oh, I love how laid back he is and how he comforts me and he's so easygoing. And then later she's saying, he's a bump on the log. He doesn't do anything. He's not a leader. He plays video games all day. Seek the one with the two. Now, if you're here, and we talked about this a little bit last week, I say this again, if you're here and your spouse is not a follower of Christ, you can't control that. You know, we'd love to control that, but we can't. We can point them to Jesus, but only the Spirit of God with their willingness can change their life. But if you're in that situation, Scripture calls us to live out the Christ life in front of them. So let me read to you the passage that talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter is way over to the right in the New Testament there from Matthew. Uh, if you come to the book of Hebrews, if you're going to the right, it's just a little bit past that. If you come to the books of 1 and 2 John, you've gone a little too far. 1 Peter chapter 3. And... Uh, Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 to 4 and verse 7. He says, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word. So that's code word for they're not a follower of Jesus like you are. So if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words, by the, but by the behavior of their wives. It's not that you never use words, but... People in that situation, they have to see it typically. When they see the, beauty, the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And then he says to husbands, husbands, so in other words, if the shoe's on the other foot here, husbands in the same way be considerate as you live with your wife and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing hinders your prayers. So he's not saying to the ladies, you know, that you can't dress up or something like that. He's just saying, don't put all the emphasis there. The bigger and more important place to put emphasis is on what God is doing in a transformational way in your inner self. And when you live 
out the Christ life in the power of the Spirit. You're doing what you can to draw that unbelieving spouse to you, to Christ. Do this. Pray for them. And it's also interesting that when we don't do these things, that it affects our prayer life. So what are some practical ways to seek the one as you're in relationship with the two? I could talk about a number of things. I could talk about making a commitment to read God's word together, a great thing to do. I could talk about going to church, which is all through the scripture, which is what Jesus did every week. You could join a small group and make it a priority. You could use your gifts to serve together in the church or out in the community or some combination together. You can lead your children together towards spiritual things. You can say, let's develop some really healthy spiritual habits and traditions together. So I could talk about all those things, but I'm just going to talk about one simple thing. The reason I'm doing that is because I think it's something we don't do very much of. And yet it helps in such a profound way. I saw some stats, and I can't remember the exact number, but people that do what I'm about to suggest on a regular basis almost never get divorced. Extremely rare. The one simple thing is praying together regularly. Now, to be honest with you, I'd love to tell you that I do that absolutely every day, but I botch it sometimes, so I'm just going to be honest with you. But it is my goal to pray together regularly. I love that, and, and it is a goal to do it every day, in fact, more than once a day, to do it multiple times together, but once in a while I botch it. But I'm committed to praying together with Debbie regularly. And I understand that sometimes this is very complicated based on your stage in life and all those kinds of things, but... I invite you to do it. And I understand that it might not even be possible if the, the partner is not a believer. might not be possible. But if you're here this morning, you go, well, Scott, i got to be honest with you. It just intimidates me like crazy to pray out loud in front of people, and it's just something I've never done. Um, start really small. So start, start like this. Whenever you eat together, just pray together you know, at the kitchen table or you're out in the restaurant, just, just reach across, grab their hand and pray over the meal together. Start small. Or if it's really tough to pray right in front of the person, pray for them over the phone. <laughs> Call them and pray. You know, send them a text message, I'm praying for you today about blah, blah, blah. And so just start in a very rudimentary, basic way. As you grow in this over time, uh, probably, and this is often the next step, um, people will develop a type of prayer list. And you'll say, you know, what are the kinds of things we should be praying about together as a couple? Let's pray for our kids. Yeah, that's a good one. Let's pray for, you know, the, our two kids or three kids or whatever the case is. And, and, and it may be that uh, God's going to have them, by way of example, get married one day. Not, not the case for everyone, but maybe for these these kids it is. And so let's pray for the person that we're going to marry, they're going to marry, that we've never met yet. Let's pray that they would come to Jesus right now, that they'd, that they'd be kept from um, the kind of sin that is just going to leave, leave really deep scars. Let's pray for them. Or let's pray, you know, I'd like to pray for my boss at work because I know my boss is going through that. Let's pray about that together. Let's pray for that couple in our small group whose marriage has hit some bumps. Let's pray for that relative that doesn't know Jesus. 
often then as you continue to grow as a couple, the next step as your prayer life grows is you, you still ask for things because that's a healthy part of a prayer life. When Jesus is asked by his disciples, disciples would, you, would you teach us how to pray? And he says, okay. And in Luke chapter 11, he gives the Lord's Prayer. One of the elements of the Lord's Prayer, not the only one, but one of the elements is to ask for things. Give us this day our daily bread. So that's one element of prayer, but there's several other elements. And so as you're beginning to grow up in your prayer life and mature and develop, um, you'll say, you know, we really should spend some time praising God and acknowledging him for who he is and what he's done. Just this last week with Billy Graham dying, I read that he said sort of the highest form of prayer is praise. And so I'm going to spend some time as I'm praying with my spouse or the person I'm dating or whatever, um, in praise of God, of acknowledging him for who he is and what he's done. And I'm going to spend some time, and you might do this element of it privately, or you might do it together, confessing your sin. There's a, there's a, a, a verse in, in the Psalms where it says, search my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me. Is there any um, undealt with sin where I haven't uh, where I haven't confessed it and repented and been forgiven and cleansed of it. And if God brings something specific to mind, I will, I'll deal with that. And, and then spend some time, another healthy element of a good prayer life is just thanking God, going, oh, thanks so much for saying yes to this, God. That, that's such a cool thing. And, and thank you so much for saying no to that. You know, at the time, I really wanted that, and I thought I needed it, thought I wanted it, and I am so glad you said no, because it would have been a disaster if you'd said yes. And you know, I understand that a, a, an important part of, of, of living with you is waiting patiently and in a good way. And so I'm still waiting on these things and I'm just waiting to hear your answer and I'm just praying anticipatory thanks, saying thanks for how you're going to answer this prayer as we're waiting for your answer about it. And so these are the different kinds of elements and we could talk about some others. If you study the prayers of Scripture, just read the prayers of Scripture, you'll see those elements coming out in the prayers of Scripture over and over again. When we pray together regularly as a couple, the scene is set for all kinds of good things to happen. We typically go to church together then. When we pray together as a couple, we're often in a small group. When we pray regularly together, we say, let's make priority raising our kids in a God-honoring way. We begin to develop these healthy habits that create spiritual momentum that grows your marriage. You know what I've found? I, I, I've been around a long time. And I've just found that it's, it's really, when you pray together with someone regularly, it's, it's way harder to fight in an unhealthy way. So I said earlier, one of the messages in this talk series is going to be on fighting fair. And, uh, you know, there, we, 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 have, we have disagreements. Everyone does. And so when you have a disagreement, are you, are you dealing with the issue rather than attacking the person? Are you disagreeing in a healthy way or an unhealthy way? I found when you pray with a person regularly, it's much more difficult to fight with them in an unhealthy way. Um, I've found 
you know, when you pray with a person regularly, it's just way harder to commit adultery on them. When, when, you, pray with, when you pray with a person regularly, whoa, that woke me up. Uh, where was I? When, <laughs> um, when you pray with a person regularly, it's way harder to get hooked on porn. When you, uh, when you pray with a person regularly, as I said earlier, it's just way harder to get divorced. The statistics are minute of people getting divorced who pray together regularly. So this pastor goes to the hospital to uh, visit this elderly lady who's 88 years of age. She's dying. And when he goes in the room, her husband, who's 90 years old, is in the room. And all the generations are in the room. You know, so the, the boys, the sons and daughters, the grandkids, the great-grandkids, they've all come because grandma is about to die. And in many ways, the pastor is like a fifth wheel because this is a family of rich faith in Christ. And so the 90-year-old gentleman is quite feeble, but he's standing at the head of the bed, and he takes his Bible out, and he opens it to Psalm 23, and he reads this psalm over his family and over his wife. And then they all... um, hands and he prays for his family and he prays for his wife of 70 years and he commits her once again into the hands of Jesus as she's about to die and when he was done the last thing he said to her is I'll see you soon and she died not long after that Pastor says to the husband, what was the secret? Husband says, oh, we messed up a lot of times. But the one thing we got right is that we were faithful to pray together regularly. If you're here this morning, I'm going to challenge you to make this first commitment of the five in this series. If you're contemplating marriage at any point in life, make this commitment. I will seek the one with all my heart, soul, and mind while preparing for the two. Remembering that it's more important, more important than choosing the right person is allowing God to make me become the right person. And if you're here today and you're married already, and I invite you to make the commitment to grab the hand of your two. Now, if, if your two is not a believer, they're not going to be into this. But I invite you to make the commitment to grab the hand of your two and never stop seeking the one. And I believe with all my heart the God of the Bible, the God who created marriage in Genesis chapter 2, the one who created you in Genesis 1 and 2, will hear your prayers and transform your marriage into everything he wants it to be. One, and then two.